So I have the opportunity this morning to share with you once again, to encourage you in the Word and to talk to you from the Scriptures and, uh, and, and to believe that God is going to do something in your heart as we do that. And the more we get a clearer picture of Jesus and a clearer picture of His Word and a clearer picture of the Gospel, the more we're just moved to trust in Him every day with every part of our lives, the more we come to a place of rest and a place where anxiety is no longer as familiar as it used to be because we have been touched and changed by the understanding that God is with us, that God is for us, that Jesus is involved with our lives, and that He uh, loves all people, that He loves you this morning, regardless of what you may have done and regardless of what your past may have looked like, that God chooses to love every single one of us and chooses to reach into our lives. And so this morning, um, we're going to continue with our series in the book of Romans, and we're going to go to Romans chapter number 9. Now, if you've read the book of Romans and you've got to Romans 9, you'll know that Romans 9 is a daunting chapter to preach on um, because it, 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 it's got some heavy things. I, I have spent countless hours wrestling with this chapter of the book to the point where at one point, I wish that it wasn't in Romans. I wish that I didn't have to deal with, with Romans chapter 9 because of some of the really difficult questions that it poses, and, uh, and I want to, to kind of take a bit more of a bird's eye view rather than getting stuck into the nitty-gritty this morning on Romans 9. I want to take a bit more of a bird's eye view, and I want to talk about the surprise of heaven. And so if you're taking notes, you can write that down as the title of the message this morning, the surprise of heaven, um, and the surprise that I believe that we're going to have when we get to heaven one day. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, you can open up at Romans 9. We'll get to it in a moment. But um, f- the first thing I want to ask is, have, have any of you ever had uh, somebody organize you a surprise party or organized a surprise party for somebody else? Anybody ever done that? Right? So I've done it a couple of times. And surprise parties are always kind of hit or miss, right? Uh, normally, the, I think the norm for surprise parties is that people tend to figure it out, because some people are not that great at lying, which is a good thing. It's a good thing if you're not that great at it. So if you failed at the surprise party thing, it probably means that you're a better person uh, for it. But, but uh, some people are not that great at it, and, and so they kind of give it away early, and the, the person whose surprise it is, um, they figure it out. And it's the worst when you figure it out before you get there, or somebody lets it slip, or whatever, because now all this effort has gone into it, and you're still going to arrive, and you're still going to pretend to be really surprised, otherwise everyone else will be disappointed, right, and so this is where we go into our method acting, and our, you know, like, but out of, from a place of love, you know, so we arrive, and everybody says, surprise, and you're like, oh, hey, never could have guessed, how are you guys, what are you guys doing here, you know, and some people are just horrible at that as well, um, trying to pretend to be surprised, um, and then other times people get it right, and the person is genuinely surprised. I remember organizing one surprise party for a friend, and when we arrived, it was such a surprise. Um, it was actually a family member, a cousin, uh, that this, this uh, cousin just started crying because of the, they were either that afraid or that happy. I'm, I'm still not sure, but um, some people are genuinely surprised. Uh, last year, for my dad's birthday, uh, my sister lives in New York, and she only gets to come home like once every two years, and uh, on the birthday, on every birthday in our family, we get up early, and then we'll go into the room, and we'll sing happy birthday, and that morning, um, my younger sister had flown in from New York, and so when we went into the room, um, she was there um, that morning, and it took my dad a, a couple of seconds to compute, wait, am I really seeing you, or am I still asleep and dreaming this right now, and 
And so there was a, a genuine surprise. Um, but another time that I think we're really going to be surprised is when we arrive in heaven one day. I actually think that many of us are going to be surprised when we get there um, because of the people that are going to be there that we didn't expect to be there. I was with a connect group. I was with a connect group this week, and we were talking about that. About how, we're going to get in like, no ways she made it in. No way she made it in. What are you doing? I mean, can you imagine going up to people in heaven going, how did you do it? Like, we never could have imagined that you were going to be here with us in, in heaven, right? And there's just some people that, that, you know, we think about that way, and we struggle not to put God in a box when it comes to salvation. In fact, the, our view of the salvation of God is really colored by our human thinking processes and, and our human understanding of goodness. Because no matter how many times we hear the gospel, no matter how many times it's preached to us, we still struggle to believe that it's not goodness that gets you into heaven, but it's the grace of God. We still struggle to grasp the concept that it's not good people that go to heaven, but forgiven people that go to heaven. We still struggle with that. Even though we know it, if I asked you the question and I put it down on a test right now, you would probably all get 100% and put the right answer down. But when we make our assessments internally, we always still tend to put God in a box in terms of who he's going to save and how he's going to save them. And, um, and in that, we forget the sovereignty of God. People, when, they, when, when we think about, as Christians, when we think about who are the people who are going to make it to heaven or are going to get to heaven, we think about the people that faithfully pay their taxes every year. Every year, without a shadow of a doubt, without any discrepancy, their taxes are filed for, their taxes are paid. You know, the kind of people that stop at the traffic light when it's orange. Who does that? Some people do that. Those are the ones going to heaven. That's how we think, right? The people who stop when it's orange, um, the ones who, who give to, to charity, the ones who are generally kind to animals, uh, you know, the, the, the moms and dads who raised good children and the children who ate their vegetables and the pastors who shook everyone's hand on Sunday. That, those are the ones that are going to make it to heaven. That's just how we assess salvation so many times when we're honest. That's how we think about it. And so surely those are the ones who will end up in heaven. And so there are so many people in our city that aren't here today because they've already uh, accepted the fact that they're not good enough to make it into heaven. They won't even engage with a connect group. They won't even get involved with our community. They won't even come and hear the gospel on a Sunday because they've already understood the fact that they are not good people and thereby have disqualified themselves because they too have got the wrong view of salvation and the wrong understanding about who it is who actually gets in and who it is who doesn't. So a lot of people feel like they just don't fit in. When they were kids, they didn't eat their vegetables. They, you know, they race over the light just after it turned red. They still go over. And, um, you know, they break the traffic rules and they struggle to be generous or to be good or to be kind. And they've never even shaken a pastor's hand. And so they consider themselves unfit for heaven and disqualify themselves from ever being able to, uh, to make it into heaven. And, and so that's why 
Romans 9 is actually an incredibly powerful book, not necessarily because of what it teaches about election and God's sovereign, sovereignty and, and all the rest. And those are, are heavy concepts that uh, I would like to have more than just a Sunday morning service like this to go into. And so if I just elevate it a little bit more, what I can tell you from, from, uh, Re- from, from Romans 9 is that um, it's not our works that gets us into heaven. Just in case you didn't know that, it's not good works that gets people into heaven. It's not goodness that gets people into heaven. It's not being trying very hard to be very good that gets us into heaven, but it is our faith that gets us into heaven. Faith is the key that unlocks God's grace in our lives and that causes us to be redeemed without us having having done a single religious thing in order to deserve it. Is everybody clear on that concept? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. That's how we're saved. And so Romans 9 really goes into that and shows us that we are going to be surprised at some of the people that God will save by His grace. And so we're going we're gonna to start off um, in Romans 9, but I'm going to actually go right to the end of Romans 9, Read that, and then I'll work my way back a little bit. So in Romans 9, verse 30, it says, What shall we say then? So this is where where Paul comes to his conclusion of of Romans 9, and he says that Gentiles, now this is people who weren't Israel, who weren't Jews, uh, who weren't a part of God's original chosen generation or chosen nation. Remember that God chose a nation through Abraham and through him came up with a plan of redemption. And so in the beginning, uh, everything that we know about God and and the law and about uh, the scriptures and and, and the patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac and, 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 and Jacob, all of those people came through the nation of Israel. And Jesus through the flesh himself was born through that lineage, through the lineage of Abraham and the lineage of David um, came Jesus in the flesh. And so we have much to be thankful for as people who aren't Jewish of heritage towards the the nation of Israel because through them God chose to bring the Messiah um, and, and, and to and to redeem all of the world, and so and so. But he says here that um, the Gentiles—that's all of us—who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. We didn't pursue it. We didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. But yet we've been made righteous. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. The people who said, no, 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 we're not going to be made righteous by faith in what Jesus has done. We're going to do it in our own strength. We're going to, we're going to observe the law. We're going to be very good. They didn't attain it because none of us can be good enough to be saved. Why? Verse 32. Because they did not pursue it by faith. Even if you are going to try and, and, and uphold the law, you can only do it by faith in Jesus. You can only take your eyes off of the law and put it onto Jesus and thereby find yourself by the transformation of the Holy Spirit in your life and, and how He transforms us, fulfilling the things that God calls us to do. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, Jesus, to those who want to follow the law and be self-righteous and be made righteous in their own strength, Jesus 
is offensive to them. Grace is offensive to them. It is an ugly message to them. People get very mad at me when I preach the simple gospel that salvation is by grace and not by works because they have so many works that they've been counting on that I'm now stepping all over their works and then they get mad at me, right? But Jesus, God has laid in Zion a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling, and you either put your faith in him or you will be offended by him. The grace of God will offend you if you don't put your faith in Jesus. And so that's what we're looking at today. And uh, I want to I take this as a parallel to another story in the Old Testament and just show you how God sovereignly chooses by His grace to save people who do not deserve to be saved. And that's why we will be so surprised when we get to heaven. So let's just go ahead and and pray together uh, as we get into this. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your presence. We thank you, God, that you can take this word and just impart it by your spirit into every heart this morning, that it will empower us, encourage us, and help us to see your, your majesty, your greatness, your goodness this morning. Help us to trust in your grace and not in our own works. We pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, the story that I really want to take this alongside this morning um, is the story of Jonah in the Bible. Now, many of you have heard the story of Jonah. It's one of the great stories in the Bible, some really exciting things that happen there. Um, and uh, Jesus refers to it, and uh, you know we, we all learned about it as kids. Great story, the story of Jonah. And so Jonah is, is, is just kind of minding his own business. And you read in Jonah 1, um, he's just kind of minding his own business, doing his own thing. And he receives a call from God. He receives a command from God. And God calls Jonah to go to the area in Mesopotamia where the Assyrians lived, to go to Assyria. And specifically, one of the main cities in Assyria that was such a big city that it would take three days to travel across the breadth of the city. 120,000 people, even in those days, lived in that city. So this is a major city But it is a violent city, and it is a city run by really violent people where they would make monuments to their most violent kings. The the more violent, the more you were honored in that city. And and there are reports of them using um, human skin as wallpaper uh, in in some of their their buildings. And and this is the kind of people that God calls so just really you know, if you're going to do evangelism, let's not go to the human wool skin paper people, right? Let's leave them for the devil, and let's just reach everybody else, right? And so this is what, what Jonah is clearly thinking, and, um, and it says in Jonah 1 verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So God says, this is an evil city. I want you to go there. I want you to call up. So not only do I want you to go to the bad city full of the people that want to murder you and use your your skin as decorations, but I want you to tell them how bad they are. Can you go do that, Jonah? Can you just go and tell them how bad they are? So obviously Jonah responds like this, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. (laughs) So he's like, so he hears God saying, hey, can you go to Nineveh? And tell the people how bad they are. And he's like, yep, I'm going this way. And so he's like, I'm going the opposite direction from where God called me to go. And, um, and that's, and that's the story of, uh, how the story of Jonah starts. So God wants Jonah to go to Nineveh. And we all know the story. As he flees, he gets on a boat. And God's mad at him because he's going in the opposite direction. And God has a purpose and a plan 
even for the people of Nineveh. Isn't that incredible? That the people of Nineveh are, are evil and they're violent and they're rebellious and they're, they serve false gods. And God says, I want to speak to those people. I want to get a message to those people. And now Jonah is running in the opposite direction. So God in his sovereignty causes a little bit of a storm on the boat. And, and, and Jonah goes, I know why the storm's happening. It's my fault. And so, and so the other sailors, he, you know, they were really great guys. They were like, no, Jonah, don't worry. We'll throw everything we have overboard and we'll make this work. We'll get through the storm. So they throw everything overboard and the storm doesn't relent. And Jonah's like, guys, it's, it is me. It's me. You know, I'm the one that is causing the storm because God wants me to go to Nineveh. And so they're like, okay, Jonah, we try to help you, but we get what you're saying and we don't want to die. So they chuck him overboard. Um, and, so, and so Jonah lands in the ocean and, um, and the storm stops, which is, which is great. They're like, okay, it was Jonah. It was his fault. Thanks, Jonah. See you later. You know? and, and so God prepares, the Bible says, a great fish and this fish swallows Jonah, and Jonah spends three days and three nights in the belly of this fish, which is a picture of Jesus, and Jesus actually refers to it, he says, as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man uh, will be, and, and it's talking about how Jesus would have been in the grave for three days and three nights, and while he's in there, he comes to his senses, if anything is going to get you to repent, it's going to be being in the stomach of a fish, and so he repents, and he prays, and, uh, and, and God then brings him to the area that he needs to be by this fish, and this, sp this fish spits him out um, on the beach. And, um, and so uh, Jonah then gets up, and he goes and preaches in Nineveh. And it's very, very interesting that the people of Nineveh worshipped their main god was the god called Dagon, and Dagon was represented by a fish. So when a fish spits a guy up on the beach, and that guy comes to preach to you, you're listening, right? You're listening. So, how did he get you? you you're not going to believe this. A fish spat him out on the beach. We saw it. And so, he goes to Nineveh, and um, he begins to preach. And so, he cries out in the city of Nineveh. He walks into the middle of the city, and, uh, and over this extended period, he cries out against them. And then this incredible thing happens in, in Jonah 3 verse 5. It says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed what Jonah was saying. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, which was an, an ancient form of mourning for, for, for sinfulness or for brokenness, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he goes on to command that everybody does the same and that everybody repents for what they've done and that everybody turns to God so that if possible, that he may relent from his anger and have mercy upon them. And then it says, and when God, in verse 10, saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. So God shows mercy on the nation of Nineveh on these people that have been so cruel, who have killed so many, um, and who have done so much wrong and so much evil in the eyes of God, he does not judge them then for that. And that's just, that was just, I can imagine for Jonah, totally unexpected that every man, woman, and child in that city repents, and Jonah is surprised by God's mercy. Or maybe not so surprised, but funnily enough, he is a little bit angry. He's a little bit irritated by God. And, 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 and I love this because Christians are like this. You know, when people wrong us, 
then so many times we're like, we want everybody to, say, to be saved except him. He must face the wrath of God or accept her. She, she must stand trial for what she's done, right? And then when we find out that those people got saved, then we're like, oh, okay. We, we struggle to be happy for them, right? And this is a human flawed thing that we do, but it's also what Jonah did. Look at this in, in um, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. So what we see here is that he didn't run away just because he was afraid of the Ninevites. He ran away because he didn't want God to save him. Not those guys. They've harassed Israel. They've caused us so much harm. They've done so much damage. They, you know, they're, they're such evil people. And God now wants to save them. I'm going in the opposite direction. How often do we as Christians go in the opposite direction from sinners because we secretly don't actually want them to be saved? Because we are silently judging them or excluding them from what God could possibly do, want to do in their lives, Right? Why do we not reach out to sinners? Why do we so easily condemn? Why do we so easily judge? Why do we so easily exclude those that aren't like us? That, or that don't seem to be good enough? That we have judged and, and, and considered as unworthy of receiving? So we often, as much as we want to laugh at Jonah and blame Jonah, we do the same thing. We see a person that's living a reckless life and we're like, well... They're going to they're gonna meet destruction. We're going in this, in this direction. And so many times God is actually calling us not to go away from sinners, but towards sinners, right? As the church, he wants us to run towards sinners. He wants us to run towards the broken. He wants us to run towards the lost and to show and to express God's mercy to them. And so he actually fled because he judged them unworthy of God's salvation, and we've got to be so careful that this isn't true of our own Christian hearts, where we decide who's worthy of salvation and who we will share the good news with. And so Jonah is, is really, really upset. And he goes and he sits outside of the city, and he's just mad at God. Now he sits on this hill, and it's really, really hot. And so he tries to build himself a little bit of a booth under which he can get away from the sun. You know, he's sitting out in the Middle East and just on this hill and he's mad. And so God, in his sovereignty, has mercy again on Jonah and causes a plant to grow up. And so this beautiful plant grows and gives Jonah shade. And it says Jonah's thankful for the plant. But the next day, God prepares a worm. It literally says that God prepared a worm. Imagine that worm getting up in the morning and going, today's my day, prepared by God, called and anointed, consecrated for this time, such a time as this. And so the worm goes, and the worm begins to eat the plant, and the plant dies, and Jonah is angry again. And so God speaks to Jonah about his anger about the plant. And he says this in Jonah uh, 4 verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God's like, I'm even worried about the cattle in this point, you know, just worried about everybody. 
God goes, I'm the one who created those people. Do I not have the right to show mercy to whom I will show mercy? Do I not have the sovereign decision and choice to reach people who absolutely do not deserve it? And do it, is it right for us to be angry when God saves sinners by grace? Is it right for us to be angry? Is it our place to decide who God can save and who he, who he cannot? Jonah, his problem was that he wanted to be the judge of who deserved salvation. And we do the same. It's so evident in how little we reach out to our city, how little concern we show for the souls of the lost and how quick we are to judge people or ostracize them or exclude them. But the heart of Jesus is different, right? And in Romans 9, we see a bit of this heart from Paul where in Romans 9 verse 1, Paul actually says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He really wants us to know that he is serious about this that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, he's saying, I'm so concerned about the lost that if I could trade my soul for their souls, I would. That's my concern. Can you imagine if somebody, if Jesus said to you, hey, um, if you were willing I would take your soul, your soul would be condemned and you would be cut off from Christ, but by that sacrifice, everyone else would receive salvation. <laughs> what, would your, what would your answer be? You don't have to say, you don't have to say, because we know, all right? <laughs> we know what it'll be. But this is, this is the level of concern that Paul has where he's like, I care about people and the lost and Israel so much that I would cut myself off from Christ if I could in order to save them. We know we can't do that. It's not possible. But that was his heart. We know that when Jesus looked out over Jerusalem, he wept. The two places in the Bible where we read about how Jesus wept was when he arrived at the funeral of, of Lazarus and saw the other people weeping and he wept. And another time was when he walked up to Jerusalem and he considered how they had rejected the prophets and, and didn't mix their hearing with faith and, 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 and weren't hearing the gospel. And he wept over Jerusalem. That's the heart of God is that even in his judgments and his righteous judgments, he is still compassionate um, towards those that are lost. And so um, Paul's talking about Israel and how dearly he wants them to be saved. And so he, he says that the Israel has got a special place. They were God's chosen nation. Through them we received the oracles of God, the prophets and the law and, and all those things. And Israel has an important role and has had an important role to play. But then he goes on to say that the true Israel isn't just people who are part of Israel naturally, who were born as uh, Jews or from one of the tribes of Israel, but the people that are of faith. Because the promise was in Isaac, in the promise of faith, and not in Abraham through the natural lineage. And so it says in the book of Galatians that if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's seed. And so the true Israel is a spiritual Israel and not a physical Israel. Not just people born of a certain descent, but people born of faith in Christ. And so in the same way that God did not only save Israel, but all of us today get to become a part of Israel. We, we don't have any right. We don't deserve to be a part of Israel, but because of God's grace, we get to be a part of Israel. It's the same story 
as Nineveh. We were evil and didn't deserve salvation, but received it. And what Paul is saying is that, is that the people, of the Gentiles, all of us that didn't deserve it, we were evil in our ways. By God's grace and sovereignty, he has allowed us to be included. And so the promise of salvation is not only for the religious few. It's not only for people who stand in holy huddles and who have pious parties. It is for all people. As God chooses sovereignly to extend his invitation of salvation to all people. It's his decision. If he made people, then he is able to reach out to whomever he wishes. And so in Romans 9, um, 10 to 16, it says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not had done nothing either good or bad, nothing to deserve anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, there was a calling, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Those that others would disqualify, God says, I will choose them. And, and so even though the younger brother would normally serve the older brother, what Jacob and Esau really show us is that even though Israel came first and had the birthright and the heritage, the Gentiles today are the ones that are carrying the message of the gospel through the church to the world. And so God has caused the older to serve the younger in this generation. He has caused the Gentiles to be the ones who carry the light of the gospel to the world, whereas initially the salvation was firstly of the Jews. And so that heritage has been passed on to us, and people would say it's unfair, and people would say it's not right, but God will have mercy upon whomever he decides to have mercy. And so he also has a plan for Israel themselves, even though they have, in a sense, uh, uh, not taken a hold of what God offered them, he says that by us as the church, doing all the things that God has called us to do, it will spur Israel on to jealousy, that they'll actually become jealous of the fact that it's the Gentiles that have grabbed a hold of this Messiah, and, and they haven't, and that we are playing that role of God's voice and oracle in this world and his representatives, and that the nation of Israel will go, we've missed out, and hopefully by that, God can turn their hearts to understanding salvation through grace. And so this does, however, make self-righteous people very angry. Grace makes people angry. It makes people that depend on works angry. It makes religious people angry. It doesn't seem fair that God would save people who don't deserve it. And similarly, you know, we begin to ask the question, why, why then doesn't God just reveal himself to everyone? So if he's saving people that doesn't deserve it, why doesn't he just save everyone who doesn't deserve it and, um, and save all? And why does he, um, and this is where Romans 9 gets really tough, harden some people's hearts? Is it because of foreknowledge? Is it because of of uh, the fact that he knew that they wouldn't choose him, so he didn't choose them. And these are some of the really difficult questions that Romans 9 raises. Essentially, um, it brings up a problem that so many of us want to try and solve. Now, 
If you're married here today as a husband and, and you've been married for any amount of time, you know that when your wife comes to you and she mentions to you her problem, it's not necessarily because she wants you to solve it. Any husbands that can testify today. She just wants you to listen to what the problem is and tell her that you understand what the problem is and you feel really sorry for her, but to not actually solve that problem which is very difficult when you can clearly see how to solve the problem, right? Speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. And so when we read Romans 9, we see this problem, and what we want to do as Christians is solve it, because we see God's sovereignty in saving people and through election, and we say, well, so God chooses who will be saved and chooses who will not be saved, but then at the same time, we also see that, that God offers salvation to all people and that there is a responsibility that man has, and we bring these two truths up against each other, and we say, well, which one is it? Is it our responsibility, or is it God who saves completely by His own sovereign uh, will And so we begin to wrestle and we try to solve the problem. But I genuinely believe that we are not supposed to solve the problem between God's sovereign grace and man's responsibility, but to simply believe in both, that they don't contradict each other, and that we can actually hold them up in tension. Because it's like seeing a diamond from different angles. It's the same diamond, but it will show you a different reflection depending from which angle you are looking at that diamond. Now, this is getting deep theologically, so I'm going to come up for air in a second, right? But just bear with me here. Does God save people simply because He chooses to or because people respond to Him? And I believe it's both. He chooses to, but we also need to respond. There is a response on our behalf. And, and as I said, I, I don't have the time this morning to go too deep into that, but I believe that Scripture has so many examples of these two things that we get to hold intention. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said this, and I just bring Charles Spurgeon in for backup. You know, you need backup, you bring up C.S. Lewis, you bring up Charles Spurgeon, you know, you bring, you bring up someone like that, and then everybody is okay with the preacher again, okay? So, so Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, this doctrine is as much God's word as the other. You asked me to reconcile the two. He's talking about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. You ask me to reconcile the two. I answer, they do not want any reconcilement. I've never tried to reconcile them to myself because I could never see a discrepancy. If you begin to put 50 or 60 quibbles to me, I cannot answer you. Both are true. No two truths are, can be inconsistent with each other. And what you have to do is believe them both, right? He says you don't have to try and solve the issue between God's responsibility or God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Hold them both. Believe them both. It's like two train tr tracks. Uh, the same way that you have a, a train track, you'll have two separate lines. And when you look into the, into the distance, you cannot see where those lines meet. Only that they do. And Charles Spurgeon uses that example of the line of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And he says they meet somewhere in front of the throne of God. We're not exactly sure what that point is, but we know that God so is sovereign and we know that we have a responsibility to respond. Let's believe both of those, all right? That's the best you're gonna get out of me today. If you come with 50 or 60 quibbles, I'm just gonna, cannot give you an answer, okay? So we trust that God is sovereign. And Paul says, you might wrestle with this, you might struggle with this. Why does God save people that don't seem to deserve it? And he gives the answer, who are we as the clay to say to the potter, 
what are you doing? He chooses, he's sovereign, and we simply trust that he's merciful and good. That's what we believe in, and that's what we hold to. Romans 9, I'm coming in for a close here. Romans 9 verse 25, as we get to the end of Romans 9, it says, as indeed he says in Hosea, uh, Paul quotes some of the, the prophets from the Old Testament. He says, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. In that place, in Nineveh, in the, in the evil parts of the world, in, in the Gentile nations, the people that were not my people will be called my people. That's God's sovereignty. That's his grace. Romans 10 verse 21 shows us something else, though. That's, if that's God's sovereignty to, to, to save people that are unfaithful, then Romans 10 21 shows us man's responsibility because just one chapter later it says, Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me, that's in all of us as Gentiles, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. So God still holds out his hand to those who would rather be saved by the law. He still says, here it is, the offer of salvation is there. Will you take up your responsibility to submit to the righteousness that comes from God and lay down your own righteousness? And they remain contrary, they remain disobedient, but God's hand remains outstretched. So there's both. There's sovereignty and there's responsibility. God offers himself to those who didn't seek it, but still holds out his hand to the disobedient. And so the responsibility of sinful people is to respond to God's grace and to repent. The responsibility of religious people is to accept God's grace, to accept his offer and they often don't. It's often the sinners that get saved and the religious that don't because they're holding on too tightly to their self-righteousness. And this is what we do. This is what we do so often. And then we exclude others as well. And so that's why my message to you today is don't forget about how much of a surprise heaven is going to be. Don't for one moment think that you're saved today because you're a good person. You're only saved because you responded to the sovereign grace of God that saves us in all of its, its, its power and its, and, and its completeness. And with that notion, with that understanding of how you have been rescued by the grace of God and not by your own works, let's not exclude the Ninevites. Let's not exclude the others. Let's not exclude the sinners. Let's not exclude the murderers and, and, and the rapists and, and, and all the people that have done the things that we would think unforgivable. I heard about a, a preacher that went into a prison and said to the prisoners, right, what we're going to do is we're going to tear out the books of the Bible that were written, for example, by a murderer. So if it's a murderer, tear out this book. And there goes your whole Pentateuch because Mo Moses committed murder. So you pull out the whole first five books of the Bible. Uh, you, you pull out uh, every, all the Psalms that David wrote because he also committed murder. Um, so let's, let's, let's rip out all the books of people that were thieves, that had stolen, that had robbed, that had cheated, that had lied, that had betrayed God, that had run away from their calling. And basically you don't have a Bible left. But then we so quickly judge people. The Bible was written by people that were flawed and imperfect like that. If God could use those people then, he can still use them today. So let's show the love of Christ and believe that his grace is sovereign to save any person 
beyond their goodness or their badness. Amen? That's why we're going to be surprised by who we find in heaven. Let's love people and reach them and reach out to our city, even though it may look like Nineveh. Amen? Amen. So uh, let's, let's go ahead and... and